Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning. We're so glad that you're joining us here today on this Remembrance Today. Hello to all of you in Port Barry, Bowmanville, or wherever you might be watching in and around the world. We're in the middle of a series out of the book of Daniel, and some of you might or might not know about that book, but it's become an incredibly helpful book to us as we are wrestling through, as both Christians and also seekers, what do we do now in the new Canada, which is now de-Christian and post-Christian and in another place? This week has been another very normal week in our country, reflecting our new reality. The United Church just declared this week that a pastor who's now self-declared, uh, self-declared herself as an atheist could retain her job even though she is a pastor and yet no longer believes in God. This week, a Dutch man who is 69 years old, now identifies himself as 29 years younger, has launched a legal battle to change his age after local authorities refused to amend his age on official documents because his rights were being attacked and impinged on. We live in unique times, we live in confused times, and we absolutely, for the first time, live in a moment that actually we have not lived in for 2,000 years, what we call a, pre or a post-Christian or a de-Christian moment. What does that mean? Well, it means that many of us around in our culture in the West have declared that we have looked at Christianity in some form, we have tasted it, we have understood it, and we've rejected it. The old psalmist used to say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Many people in our families, maybe some of you said, I have tasted and seen God, he is not good. In other words, Christianity is not valuable. I've tried it and it doesn't work. I don't like it, I don't believe in it, I don't need it. Actually, Christianity is irrelevant or even dangerous. Now, some of us who are Christians would say back, but you actually maybe didn't really meet Jesus personally or, or what you were exposed to wasn't a real beautiful form of Christianity. And the response in a growing manner in our culture is it doesn't matter, we've rejected it. I love what our communications director says all the time here. Churches in the West are fighting over uh, who has the best burgers. Well, I put uh, uh, ketchup on mine. I put mustard on ours. No, we have lettuce. No, we're really special. We put barbecue sauce on ours. No, no, we have blue cheese. But our culture has decided it is vegan and actually it's wrong to eat meat. And we're all arguing who has the better burger and our whole culture says, I'm not even interested in the conversation you are having anymore. So what do we do? Well, it's into this no-win situation, this lost situation, that one key theme that comes up again and again in the book of Daniel is incredibly helpful to all of us. God is God and he can do anything he wants. Daniel, the book, is an affirmation of sovereignty. God can walk back at any moment into our de-Christian, post-Christian, skeptical culture, no problem, and encounter people, as we've seen all day at every service in our church. Oh, by the way, the Bible holds nothing back on this. Job says in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. The psalmist wrote it like this in Psalm 135.6, The Lord does whatever pleases him. Now, to the skeptical ear, to the apathetic ear, this is scary because we're like, well, wonder if God is full of darkness. Wonder if God has an inclination towards evil. Maybe God isn't good. This sounds like a dictator, someone who could destroy my life. That's true. If God was not good, this would be horrifying. But here's the good news that we need to be reminded of again. God is good, and God is holy, and God is love. Anyone want to say amen to that? He's he's good. And God, who is a good, loving God, can step in at any time to change any situation. But the problem that we must go to today is that we are not always good. 
And we are not always loving, and we are not always holy, and actually we are, uh, we are touched by darkness. And there is one name that summarizes all of the human condition towards each other, ourselves, and God that's evil. It's called pride. Pride has always been the problem. The battle between created and creator has always been the flashpoint. We believe, some of you still believe, the lie that Satan told our ancestors, Adam and Eve, at the beginning When he seduced them, he said these words in Genesis 3, 5. God knows when you eat from that forbidden fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Oh, you'll be like God, Satan promises. Disobedience will bring blessing. Breaking God's law and your relationship with God is the best thing you can do. It will bring you the most positive results. You'll be more than God intended you to be. You can be king. You can rule. You can throw out God's loving rule at any time, and your rule will be better than his rule because you know better. Be your own king. Build your own kingdom. And by the way, don't misread this. All of this can look in many ways different ways. Like you can look at this through a secular lens. I'm an atheist or an agnostic. I don't need God. Or you can be very spiritual and religious. I will prove myself to God by all I do. Or you can be self-help and spiritual. Powerful people are like this. Unpowerful people. Poor, rich, educated, uneducated. Every single worldview ends up with us at the center. Listen to what we've been taught in our culture, no matter your skin color or background. Listen, know yourself, we're told, or discipline yourself, or religion says be good and God will be impressed. Others say, no, 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 forget all that, just satisfy yourself. Others say, no, no, expand yourself. Others say, no, no, assert yourself. Other people say, no, no, please yourself. Others say, no, 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 suppress yourself. Other people say, no, no, believe in yourself. Others say, no, no, promote yourself. Do you notice that all of those contradictory statements have one thing in common? yourself, you are at the center of the conversation. That's pride. Oh, and the story has not changed. The story in 2018 that we're living now was the same in Daniel's time. We enter back into the life and times of Daniel, and now it becomes so obvious this book, this story, is not just about thriving in exile alone, not just a story of faithfulness in a fallen city alone. This is the really a story of two kings, two kingdoms, two sovereignties. Now, don't forget, the king at this time is Nebuchadnezzar. He's a polytheist, which means he believes in many gods, but at the same time, he has done something shocking. He has already acknowledged that God, the God of the Jews, is the most high God. He has, from a semi-distance, experienced the God of the Jews time and time again. And so at the first dream that was interpreted by Daniel, this is what he ends up saying about a people and the God that he supposedly conquered. Daniel 2.47, surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of all mysteries. Well, by the time we arrive to Daniel 4, God has now been acknowledged three times as stronger, more powerful, and has been given the shocking place of primacy among the pantheon of all the gods. And yet now God's rule and God's reign and God's sovereignty, actually God himself is going to move to interfere with this king. God is going to personally walk into the very life and rule and reign of this king and meet him. See, so far, everything has been from a safe distance, but God is going to come close. See, that's the same with some of you. God, for you, has been at a safe distance, but not anymore. And to our shock, when we turn to Daniel 4, the king is giving witness to what God has already done to him, in him, through him, and for him. Listen to these words, Daniel 4.1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live on the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. 
Now, the king, of course, could do this. This is called a royal proclamation. He owns his empire, and so he calls all people to listen. And he says, again, this shocking thing, that the God of the Jews, the God of those we have conquered, he has personally come close to me. And it is beautiful to me. It is joy. It is with love. It's with this new discovered hope that I, your emperor, and your king, give you my story, my personal encounter I had with the most high living God. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. The very first thing this great and mighty king says is God's kingdom is eternal. Unlike human kings who come and go, God's rule cannot be touched, cannot be changed, cannot be removed, cannot be overthrown, cannot be taken by force, removed by assassination, scandal, or sickness. God is the one that brings up. God is the one that brings down. God is the one who gives humans life. God is the one who gives human rulers rule. All of us, the king says, leaders, our power, our position, we are utterly and totally dependent on this God. Hear me, all nations, he says, if God, who I did not really know, could meet me and humble me and bring me down, he can do it with anyone. Listen to my story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace. I was prosperous and content. The story, by the way, begins at the best of times for the king, the highest point of the king's life. This king is marked by self-reliance, education, power, control, military might. The king says, I was at rest. I was free from fear. I was prospering. And it literally reads in the original language, I was growing green. No war, no conquering. A great architect to the point where his capital became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he looks at anyone. Is there anyone stronger than me? No. His word is law. He can destroy anyone. He can lift anyone up. So he is not only living what we now call the American dream. He's running the American dream. And yet into that perfect scenario that we all supposedly want, another profound divine interference crashes in. He said, I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed and the images and visions that passed through my mind, they terrified me. So the king of kings, the guy who had the nuclear codes of the ancient age, is sleeping and experiences another great overwhelming emotional disturbance, so shocking, so scary, so overwhelming that he, though he's all-powerful, is struck with terror. He had everything, and yet one little dream reminds him he's just human. He might control much of the earth, but he doesn't control the heavens. He's the greatest person on earth, and yet in that moment, one dream reminds him he's here today, gone tomorrow, he's not in control, and he's afraid just like the rest of us. So what did he do? He said, I commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be brought before me, to interpret the dream for me. And so when the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and diviners came, I told them my dream, but they could not interpret it. Now remember, if you've been on the journey with us, what we've learned. These four categories of leaders are actually a summary of the best thinkers of their day. They were the academics, the scientists, the priests, and occultists of the day. The king calls the best and brightest to come. This was normal. This was their job. They interpreted the natural and the supernatural. But unlike the first time, he now chooses to follow the agreed-upon rules. He tells them the dream. They go away to consult the rules the gods have given and see if they can work out an interpretation. Last time when he had a dream, he was in such a fit of rage, such a bad mood, so scared that he said, you must tell me what I dreamt and tell me the interpretation or I'm going to murder all of you. But at this moment, there is no threat, no purging, no king-like temper. And yet interestingly, pride is sitting in the room. 
You say, well, John, where is it? Well, here's the answer. Where's Daniel? Daniel is, by the way, in charge of all these men that have gathered. It was John Calvin, the great reformer, when he was thinking on this, that famously said the reason why Daniel was not in the room yet is the king was afraid because he knew if he asked Daniel, the real implications would come home to roost. So he comes in a little later, which, by the way, would never be allowed. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him my dream. And I said, Belteshazzar, uh, Daniel, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. There's no mystery too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Would you interpret it for me? I'm glad to see you. Not really. I come with great expectancy. I'm terrified. But unlike the rest of us, you're different. The gods somehow live in you like differently than the rest of us. You have access to a power source that makes no sense to me. God speaks to you. I'm listening. I have no choice. I'm in a corner. These are the visions I saw while I was lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height, well, it was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit abundant, and on, on it food for everyone. And under it, the wild animals, they found shelter, and the birds lived in the branches. From it, every creature was fed. Now notice, this is the third, again, if you've been with us, the third overwhelming thing the king has encountered. The first dream he had was of a colossal statue. The second was he lost it. He had a temper tantrum, and he threw three people out of anger into a fiery furnace, and they did not die. They weren't even singed. They came out perfectly fine. And now a massive, colossal tree is at the center of his dreams. Now we're sitting here on the outskirts of Toronto in 2018 going, what's with the tree? Too much hummus last night, King Nebuchadnezzar? A little too much wine? What's going on? No. The image was very common in the ancient world. It's what scholars now classify as the axis mundi. It is the symbol where heaven and earth touched, and it was always written or designed like a tree. This cosmic tree was the center of the universe. It was the symbiotic link between the physical and the spiritual. It was a symbol of fertility, growth, prosperity, beauty, shade, power, food, protection. And they used to believe that this tree was the only true life-giving element in the universe. But as we begin to see, something's changed. The king. Nebuchadnezzar and his dreams begin to reveal something. The king, maybe unofficially at first, but now very, very officially, he begins to consider himself connected to this tree. The tree and him somehow have merged into one. He is now the king of the world, and why can't he be the king of the cosmos? He is the image of the divine. He is the perfect person. His kingdom, his work, his power. Lush, healthy, beautiful, abundant, all-consuming. He starts believing he is godlike. Do you remember what the snake said to Adam and Eve? So life is amazing. Oh, and there's peace, and life is great. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to think or act like he is a god himself. I run the world. What do I need? Nothing. But then into that perfect life, into that, again, American dream, that Western promise of health, wealth, power, sex, security, smarts, religious insight, something more powerful, more otherworldly, uncontrollable, crashes into the king's reality, into his dreams, <clears throat> comes at his weakest, most vulnerable, most human moment, REM sleep. And it says, in that moment, an angel is sent from the throne room of God himself, and the, and the angel walks into this dreamlike state, and in a loud, consuming, earth-shaking declaration, he says that the great tree shall be cut down. It says in verse 14, he called a loud voice, cut down the tree. 
Trim off its branches, strip the leaves, and scatter the fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. The roots are not to be touched. Uh, the tree to be cut down and broken, but something might remain alive. Not full death, but humility and humiliation. The stump would be bound with iron and bronze. What does that mean? Many believe it's the symbol of what God is going to place on the king, this temporary like insanity. Others think, no, no, in ancient times when they were trying to preserve a tree and it started to split or rot, they would bind it in bronze and iron. So this is a symbol of God's judgment and his mercy to this great king all at once. But it's these next words that brought him absolute terror and fear. This is why he was up at night. This is why he was afraid. The angel said, let the king be drenched in the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed to that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. God was going to bring the king down by giving him temporary mental illness. It's actually when a person begins to believe they are an animal and they live like an animal. Now this is grand humbling. Oh, don't read into the text that all mental illness is judgment from God. Not at all. But what God is saying in this moment, he is doing this to this great king and it will be for a limited time. The great king, the great general, the great artist, the great builder, the great architect, the great king of all kings will live like a wild animal. His mind will be lowered. He will be humbled. And then the angel says something even more scary. The decision is announced by the messengers, the holy ones. They declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. And this is just like the Christmas story. When something profound is announced, there is one angel and suddenly the heavenly host shows up and all of the angels say together, yes, our God has spoken. Heaven has agreed. Now, why is this being done to this pagan, all-powerful king? Well, the fall, which, by the way, he is recounting in first person, was done as a witness to the world, not just to the king, but actually to all the sorcerers and all the enchanters and all the scientists and all his generals and all the people. He is saying, God is sovereign over human history. God is sovereign over me. God appoints rulers and brings them up and down. God is the most high God. He has no beginning. He has no end. I have a beginning. I have an end. And he's in control whether I think he is or not. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, Daniel, you tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it. But you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel was so greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts now terrified him. So the king said back, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Now Daniel knows how serious this is. He knows what this will mean. This is not only overwhelming, not only worrying, not only horrifying, he actually is not just scared. Here's what we miss if we read this too quickly. Daniel is sad for the king. Daniel is genuinely concerned for the king. He's not taking pleasure in this announcement at all. Now we're going to walk through part two of Daniel 4 next week, but let me just take you a little farther down the pike to show you what happens. Verse 27, therefore, O king, Daniel says, let my counsel be acceptable to you Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Listen, you're a great king, but you do not follow God personally, and you don't obey his laws. You set up your own laws, and you worship false gods. You need to start obeying the Ten Commandments. 
And actually, by the way, repent of your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. You don't love poor people. You use the poor for your own advantage. Do these things and there might perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Repent while there is still time because God is the one who's given you everything and God can take it all away. Now here's the question. Not only what do we learn today intellectually, what do we see? Here's the great question in the room at this moment, across all of our rooms. What is God saying to us as we gather for this moment? Well, the first is this is a contrast between two kings. Who's the perfect man? Who's the one that brings heaven and earth together? Who's the one who reveals God, whose kingdom does not end? Whose connection to a tree feeds the world, changes the world, heals the world? Nebuchadnezzar? Remember, history is littered with leaders that said that if you followed them, everything would be okay. History is filled with religious leaders and politicians and scientists and inventors, and they say, if you just buy this product, if you just follow me, everything's going to be okay. And Nebuchadnezzar is one of the best examples of that, but here's what we all know. No leader can do what this tree does except one person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in flesh, not Nebuchadnezzar and no other person. Jesus has all authority. Jesus died on a tree called the cross, and through that tree, he reconciled the world. Jesus feeds the world, heals the world, saves the world, promises a new heaven and new earth to come. Jesus, through that tree, overcame the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is above all things. Jesus is our only hope. Our only hope. That's why in the book of Philippians, we need to say this again. Therefore, God has exalted Jesus to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we all said together, amen. This has always been the lie in humanity. Ever since Eden, we believe we can be like God, and our leaders even think they can be like God. No, there is only one who came for us when we could not get to him. His name is Jesus. He's not just a human, not just a political revolutionary, not just a man of note, not just a religious leader. He is our creator in flesh, showing us the holiness and love of God. Now, here's the second thing. For you who are a Christian, I know not all of you are, but for you who are genuine followers of Jesus here today, trying to learn how to live very well in this time where our faith is now moved more and more to the margins. Notice that Daniel was kind to the king and his king was his enemy. Remember what we're learning. How do we thrive in exile? How do we uh, shine brightest stars in our culture? How do we not hide or run but stand and love in a post-Christian, de-Christian environment? What do we do when apathy and hostility grows against our faith in our families, in our friendship circles, at work, in our schools? How do you hold on to Christian convictions like Jesus is the only way because he claimed it? Or actually, no, there are limits to sex because God has created it and he's the boundary giver. Or actually, no, we will love the poor and the immigrant because God is close to the poor. How do you hold Christian conviction and Christian compassion at the same time when the culture on the left and the right says you're all wrong? Will you listen to the prophet Jeremiah where he said this, You seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I, God, have placed you in exile. You pray to the Lord for it. If it prospers, you prosper too. And don't forget the power of this. Jeremiah gives this to Daniel and his friends. Pray for the city that invaded you, Daniel. Pray for the city that destroyed the temple of God. Pray for the city that those who are trying to make you worship idols and demons. Pray for those that changed your name under the name of demons. That's what Belteshazzar means. Pray for those that killed off your family. 
killed off your friends in the exile. Pray for a city full of wickedness. Pray for a city full of idols. Pray for a city that does not obey God when it comes to money, sex, or power. Pray for a king that kills and overcomes. Do you see it? Daniel tries to help the king. Daniel loves the king. He does not gleefully celebrate when he hears the king is going to go down. He doesn't clap his hands and finally say, oh, the king gets his just desserts. It's about time. He does not hold some falling party. I get to see the king go down in so much pain, and this is so good because finally we're getting our justice. Oh, by the way, if you're a Christian, is this your starting point with those that might even be wrong and we disagree with? Those of different religions, different politics, different views, different moralities, different sexualities? We don't in the church need any more keyboard warriors using social media to bring people down or celebrate people's falling. Our culture loves hearing when the other side loses. Our culture loves when famous people mess up. We love suffering. We love misfortune. We love the online world where it's full of bragging and gloating and slander and lying and killing and we're all eating chips on our couch watching people die. And Daniel says, this is not of our side. This is not who we are as the people of God. I will show this to you. I will not just love my enemy. I will love the one who actually was the one who gave the order to destroy everything I love. I will love God, oh, and I will even love my neighbor. What did Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount? Given to Christians, not to non-Christians, to us. You've heard it said, Matthew 5, 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. To the religious Jews of Jesus' day, neighbor meant my people, Jews only, those who belong to my race and religion. So love my neighbor means us, and the implication is I get to hate you. Jesus undoes that when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and he says that neighbors and enemies are the same. It was Scott McKnight that wrote this one line that's so powerful, and he said, prejudicial love is only a way of loving ourselves. And that is exactly what Jesus is going after. So the question is, how do you as a Christian love your enemy? How do you love those who are actually wrong according to God? And the answer is, well, Jesus says this, you bless those who curse you. You do good to them that hate you. You pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you. Do you see it? Suddenly, the king and the enemy becomes your neighbor. The most powerful thing we can do in the new Canada, the most powerful thing we can do now in this post-Christian, de-Christian moment is pray for our enemies. Bring them before the God of Daniel through Jesus and ask God to change them like he's changed who? Us. It's asking God to save them, to forgive them, and not just make them sort of enemy to neighbor. No, no, it gets even more personal. What we are asking is, God, would you make my enemy my brother and my sister in Jesus? Daniel did this, Daniel demonstrated this, Jesus commanded this and did this. This is how we thrive in exile. This is how we stand out in this new time. We do not have to agree with everyone. Actually, it is our responsibility to call sin, sin when our culture thinks there is no standard for anything. But while we stand, we are not jerks when we stand. We love, we bless. And if people hate us back or attack us, exaggerate, lie about us, or don't even take the time to find out the facts, it is okay because we know that God is in control and we know that God is sovereign and our desires, our enemy who slanders us personally at work, in our family or online, becomes our brother or sister in Jesus. This is why we are different. We do not use the weapons of this world to change the world. We call on heaven who changes the world. 
Now this story also brings home, yes, you can clap to that because it's true. But this story also brings home the gospel itself and outlines our whole human shared problem. You want to understand how to speak to wealthy people, rich people, powerful people, wicked people, arrogant people, important people, or how about just this, self-sufficient people. Some of you are like, well, that's not me, I'm not rich. Yes, you are. If you live in this country, you're in the top 3% of the world and there's over 7.5 billion people. Trust me, we are rich. God has always captured the mind and attention of the arrogant, the rich, the wealthy, and the self-sufficient through his own divine intervention. Nothing else will get their attention. Why? Because actually they only respect power. The great barrier to encountering God, the great barrier to real purpose in life, the great barrier to actually finding God is pride, self-trust. And by the way, self-trust takes so many forms. Some of the most prideful, self-reliant people on earth are the most religious person you know. Because they believe if I'm good enough, if I pray five times a day, if I give this amount of money, you fill in the blank. If I go to church, fill in the blank, then God will like me because of what I do for him. Selfishness. Atheists are the exact same. I don't need God because I'm at the center. The most religious person on earth and the most atheistic person on earth are the same person in front of God. Self-sufficient. Jesus used money this way to talk about this conversation. He said in Mark 10, 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed and said, who then can be saved? The camel is the largest animal found in that country. And Jesus saying, it's not just hard or crazy. It is impossible for a large animal to go through the smallest opening. How hard it is for those that have much and have things to meet God. How distracted we are. How many barriers there are. How many riddles there are in front of us. What a word for us. We all want to be rich. We think that being rich makes life more difficult or we want more power or more education or more sex or more influence or more travel or more entertainment or more experience or more religious duty or more spiritual experience or more self-help. We think that more, 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 more is the answer. I mean, that's how the king lived, thought, and fought for. It was Queen Latifah that once said, being rich doesn't make you happy, but it sure makes life easier. True. But Jesus says, in the opposite, your life grows more difficult when you have more things, when it comes to eternity. Our culture doesn't even think about saying, God, give us our daily bread. We've got longos and loblaws. Who needs him anymore? Nor did this pagan king or this powerful king. See, when you're at the center, money, religion, education, spirituality, materialism, lack of belief, pain, lack of expectations, you don't need God anymore. You've got you. So that is why God comes and he does something. Because God is love. He humbles us. God showed up to this pagan king, not just to take him out at the knees, but to bring him down so he could bring him back up and give him life. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, talking about the rich and meeting God, he says, all things with man is impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. When we look at where we are at this moment in our country, it seems like a growing impossibility. And that's when heaven smiles and goes, perfect. When nothing else can show up, watch me show up and do something and you'll all know it's me and not you. When God came 
to humble the king, as we'll see next week. He came to humble, and remember, this king enslaved God's people. This king tortured God's people. This king burnt God's temple to the ground where God's presence used to be. If God would love Nebuchadnezzar like that, he could love any of us. Any of us. And so in this moment, what do we see so profoundly? You're saying, well, John, what do I do? Here's what we need to do. Pray for the most arrogant, wicked, powerful, self-sufficient person in your life and pray that God breaks in so they cannot deny him anymore and they cannot deny his power and they would see their need. Then and only then can salvation come. You go before God and you say these words, God, go get them. Because in your getting, people get saved. Now, some of you are listening to me today. You're, you're here or you're at another site or actually you're online and you are really angry right now because you're Nebuchadnezzar and God brought you to this moment and this was not the conversation you were expecting today. But here's what, listen, I'm no angel. I just work for the same guy. But just like that angel showed up in that dream, so I am standing here on behalf of God, your creator. And as a fellow human being, I have a message for you. Humble yourself. Because if you humble yourself, God will encounter you and you will be saved. You want to know the beauty of Christianity and the offense of it? The beauty and offense of Christianity is you can do nothing to find purpose in life. You cannot earn salvation. You will never find purpose, life, or salvation unless you give up and let someone else do it for you. Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace, free gifts, that we get saved through faith, informed trust. And it's never from yourself. It's a gift of God. Not by work, so no one gets to have a pride problem. No one gets to what? Boast. See, some of you who are Nebuchadnezzar are deeply offended because everything I've just taught threatens everything you trust in. And God comes in this moment and says, exactly, because everything you trust in is going to disappear. But actually, I value you so much. You are so valuable to me. I was there in the womb when the egg hit the sperm and you became you. I know you, God says. I have known you your whole life, whether you've known me. And just like the king who was always at a safe distance from God, well, this is the moment where God is crashing into your life and he's saying salvation is for you. Entrance into my kingdom that will not end is for you. But you must have faith, trust in another's work, another's grace, another's actions. Salvation is a miracle every single time. It is undeserved. You are a sinner and so am I. We are unworthy and yet our creator still loves us post-rebellion and comes for us. But you will go away sad. You will never enjoy God. You will never enter into the kingdom that lasts unless you give up everything and say to the one who reveals the God of Daniel, Jesus Christ, be my savior and be my Lord. I will trust in no one else I will not trust in anything else. You can have the final say over me, what I want, what I believe, where I go, and who I am, because you are a better master than I have ever been to myself. So if you wouldn't mind standing, whoever you are, wherever you are, would you all stand together, and let's respond in three different ways. Number one, we'll respond in prayer like this. For all of us who are Christians, we just want to say a huge thank you. Thank you, Lord that you humbled us and walked into our life and didn't just cut the tree in the roots, just cut the tree. Thank you that you humbled us so we could have eternal life and salvation and hope. We did not deserve to know you because of a rebellion, but how good and kind you are. You're a good father. You're a good dad. You're a good savior. Thank you, Lord. Second of all, Lord, I'd ask now you to, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit across our church 
and bring to people's mind right now that person who will never become a Christian. That husband, that wife, that father, that, that mother, that person at work, that very devout person of another faith, that atheist, that agnostic, that Wiccan witch, that Buddhist. Holy Spirit, give us the image in our head. And when you've got that image in your head, you pray this now. You say, Lord, you love that person. Go get them. Just pray it right now. Go get them, Lord. Show up in their dreams. Show up in their circumstances. Start showing up and send an angel if needed. But actually, I'm asking for that family member or friend or, or my enemy at work, my boss who I cannot stand. Lord, I'm asking you, send your spirit to them. I want them to be my brother and sister in Jesus. And lastly, if you are Nebuchadnezzar, you're the self-reliant, in-charge person. And at this moment, you have realized your lostness, your purposelessness. As I've talked, you have become fearful and terrified. This is what you pray. God of heaven, who I've known about or not known, but now is here, I accept your son, Jesus. I turn from my sin. I turn from trusting in myself or religion or spirituality or self-help. I give up all my rights when it comes to sex, money, and power. All of them. Forgive me of my sin. I want life. I want eternal life. I actually want to be changed. Come and give me eternal life like I witnessed with the young and the old who are baptized today. Jesus, be my Savior. Be my Lord. Come and do a new thing. And lastly, we all pray, oh God, again, for the seventh time we pray this, look upon Canada. Thank you for this nation. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. Humble our nation like you humbled Nebuchadnezzar and bring this nation back to God, found in Jesus, because when this nation finds Jesus, the whole world will be touched because the whole world is among us. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who is holy and love and our hope forever and ever in every generation. And we said loudly together, amen. amen. Let's sing together. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.